It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson with a lot of security news. We'll talk about that coin wallet idea. And he'll also explain what Radius is. A lot of people asking, how come ProXPN only allows 12 characters on a password? And is that insecure? No. Turns out it's it's very common practice. Steve explains why it's not a problem next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 431, recorded November 20th, 2013. What is Radius? Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way you want to, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 50% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN50. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones, your privacy, your security online. The uh, explainer-in-chief, the king of security now, Steve Gibson, is here. We actually He's actually in studio with me. We just give him a little box to look through, a little window, so it feels like he's on screen. <laughs> uh, you know, he joins us from his uh, fortress of uh, securitude in beautiful Irvine, California, uh, each week. Hello, Steve. We've been having day-long scheduled power outages down here. What? How dare I've- they? It's bland. Well, you know me. I mean, I'm pretty much SOL. <laughs> when there's no power, it's like, okay, well, thank goodness Kindles last a long time. So I've been doing some reading I, uh, uh, and then uh, working on catch-up stuff. But uh, So we got one more next Monday. Are they, are they power washing the, the nuclear plant or something? I mean, why would you no, have I, day-long outages? Well, Irvine is all underground power, as are you know, all modern metropolises these days, metropoli. And uh, I've been here since 84, and there's never been anything like this. And we just have old equipment. Uh, and I think they're – so I think they're having to do huge upgrades. And they're also pulling – I'm seeing huge, big truck-mounted reels of – you know, everything is 440 uh, volts underneath the ground. And then they have local subterranean transformers that drop it to 220 and to 110. And so – these massive cables are being pulled. So I think they're probably increasing capacity, maybe just, you know, rotating out old old cable for new. Who I have I've been sort of intent I've been curious enough and certainly I've had some time on my hands when all the lights are out to wander down and say, Okay, so what is this? But it doesn't look like there's anyone really to talk to. So yeah, I like, don't no. know. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm just putting that line in there. Yeah, I just they said draw this over to here yeah. and then connect it to that. Yeah. <laughs> there were there were a couple guys out in front the other day and they looked like that. They were listening to some radio with their feet up on the dashboard. I thought, okay, then I'm not I'm not gonna get the whole story from this guy. So but <laughs> Power came back on and and uh, everything's fine. What did they say? What is uh, what is black and orange and sleeps eight? A Caltrans <laughs> bus. Yeah, that's a bad joke. 
So um, a number of people have complained over the months that ProXPN has been a sponsor, that ProXPN's password length, their maximum password length is 12 characters. Mm, that's usually and, a bad sign, isn't it? Well, but it's not in this case. And that's why I thought we something we've never talked about is radius. Radius is a 22-year-old technology that was first, there was an RFI that was put out like almost pre-internet for um, for developing distributed or or wide area network authentication, and so the rules that apply to a radius based authentication are very different from everything we've we've been teaching everyone <laughs> for the last couple of years about you know a website should never be able to show you your password in the clear and it should you know if a, if it's a fixed link that means they're not hashing it you know blah 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 and but pro xpn allows you if when you stop to think about it for a second you can you can connect to servers all over the world wherever you choose to connect to and somehow that server knows you have an account with ProXPN. And our end users, our, our, our listeners, will have encountered this. We've, you know, we've, we've never talked about WPA2 Enterprise. You know, what is that for Wi-Fi? And that's, a, that's Wi-Fi where you don't use a pre-shared key, but where it, the, the router looks up your credentials on the fly, and that uses radius. And so, anyway, our topic today, if we get to it, because there's also <laughs> it, there's so much news to and really interesting things that I wanted that I want to talk about. That well, that that's nominally the topic. But if we do it next week, well, so be it. Well, but I, I wanted to explain to people why this wasn't a problem. The Pro XPN. I mean, I'm not defending Pro XPN. They can take care of themselves, but. But I, but, the, but there's, you know, a misconception that the only way to do passwords is the way we've been talking about. And actually, if you have very different needs, which is what a, you know, a, a global network has, then the rules are a little bit different. So I wanted to cover that. And the other thing that I thought was funny was, it's like, wait a minute, um, all the, a pro XBN account is doing is authenticating you to access their servers. They're the ones who want it to be strong. We really don't care. You know, I mean, it's like you, you could give your, you wouldn't want to give your credential to somebody else, but I mean, you could. You would never do that with, you know, cloud storage where someone would have access to your stuff. But here, it's 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 really reversed. It's ProXPN that would want secure authentication, but you don't really care. I mean, who cares? Because if if like someone gets your credentials and is able to, you know, have access to their networks, they're the ones who want the protection rather than the user. So it's sort of turned around anyway. But but anyway, we have a ton of stuff to get to. We had um, the ninth annual podcast awards. I didn't find out about it until twenty four hours before they were closing. Um, I want to talk about that. GRC is now full 
perfect forward secrecy operational. There's been news on the crypto locker front, of course. Bitcoin has had a wild ride. There was news of that concerned a lot of people that, that came out last week about the OS underneath the smartphone OSs that apparently isn't very secure. Two really interesting new payment systems have surfaced. A bunch of miscellaneous tidbits, and as I said, if we ever get to it, we'll yeah. talk about Radius. <laughs> Holy cow. Well, we better get going <laughs> here. Let's just, just mention, as long as you did, uh, our sponsor, ProXPN. ProXPN is people saying, well, what does ProXPN do? Uh, they are, and they're very security conscious, a open VPN uh, provider. That means you can use ProXPN when you're in situations like, uh, you know, an open access point at a coffee shop or on a hotel's Ethernet or Wi-Fi. You know, anytime I'm at a hotel and I sign on to the uh, hotel network, uh, if I open my iTunes, I always see a long list of other iTunes uh, servers that are oh, in just, the network. There's, yes, there's nowhere worse than in a hotel. Yeah, and I think people feel like, especially if you've got it wired, right? Oh, it's Ethernet. I must be safe. No. But here's a solution that's really great. Pro XPN, the idea of any VPN, is they use OpenVPN, is it encrypts the data from your computer to their servers. So anybody along that route, like your internet service provider, a snoop at a hotel, a snoop at a Wi-Fi uh, wi access point at a coffee shop, just can't see in. It's just, it looks like encrypted garbage. That's, even if your email provider doesn't encrypt, even if your websites don't encrypt, it's completely private. Uh, they set up the encryption with a 2048-bit key. Then they have 512-bit tunnel, more than adequate. And because their uh, endpoints, the place you're surfing to through uh, ProXPN, are all over the world, Dallas, Seattle, London, Singapore, Los Angeles, New York City, and Amsterdam, you can be anywhere in the world. This means no more geographic restrictions. It also means if you're worried about your Internet service provider snooping on you. People always say, oh, I worry about Google. I say, well, what about the person who is right in front of Google, your ISP? What do you know about them? What is their privacy policy? ProXPN means you can use the Internet the way it was designed, privately, anonymously, without oversight. Don't worry about those six strikes rules. Don't worry about geographic restrictions. Now, they do have a free uh, ProXPN service. If you want to try it, that's absolutely great. But we've got a really good deal for you. The premium account uh, is, very, is pretty affordable. I mean, it's uh, $75 for an entire year. That's uh, $625 a month when you bill annually. $9.95 month to month. But if you use our offer code SN20, you'll get 20% off, not for the first month or year, but forever. That means we're talking less than 5 bucks a month to use ProXPN whenever you're surfing the net. You will really like their features. And by the way, and this is something uh, that is really a nice addition from ProXPN, uh, in the past you've had to use the less secure PPTP on mobile devices. ProXPN Mobile for iOS and Android is out. The Android uh, version just came out. That means you can use... OpenVPN on Android now, which is fantastic. They also have software for Windows and Mac that give you advanced controls, allowing you to select programs and ports uh, through their servers. Uh, I just, I'm a big fan. World-class customer support. You can cancel anytime in the first seven days, so you're you're really uh, you're protected. Visit proxpn.com/twit for a tour of ProXPN, and if you'd like to try it, uh, uh, you can do it absolutely uh, free. 
Take advantage of the uh, special deal, though, and you'll save some big bucks. SN20 is the offer code. And yes, don't worry about the 12-character password. Steve said it's okay, and we're going to find out why later in the show. ProXPN.com slash twit. Steve approved. Leo encouraged. <laughs> ProXPN. Thank you for your support. And you know, there a lot of VPNs uh, now uh, under uh, attack. You know, the government's uh, going after them. And it's nice to have one that's actually not in the U.S. They're, uh, they're in Singapore and Amsterdam. Uh, and so um, they're much, I think, much less prone to. Uh, well, and you know what? What I like about them is that OpenVPN is the VPN that I use. Right. It's I've checked it out thoroughly. I've I've I I use it to connect to. I've used it several times when I've been up visiting you to connect into GRC's servers. It's the only way I would trust having an an open port into GRC's network is protected by OpenVPN. It's funny too, you because one of the one of my little machines that did not come back alive after this bout of of all day power Ooh. outages Ooh. Yeah. is my is my OpenVPN box here that I have on my network at home that allows me to get into my home network when I'm out roaming around. And as it happens, I've got another little board that I'll replace with. I was running FreeBSD. And I never set up a DHCP server. I normally use fixed IPs. I use a 10 dot network in my in in within my little world here. But I've, it's been often would have been convenient to have a DHCP server running. So I was like, well, this will give me a chance to to revisit it and set it up and and tune it up a little bit, set up a new a little machine. But yeah, I'm I mean that's what I use. And what I liked about Pro XPN is they're an open VPN provider who. If you don't have endpoints at your own networks or wherever convenient, as you said, you you can appear to be somewhere else. And I've heard from people, our listeners, saying, "Hey, I'm able." There was some someone, some sports broadcast was blacked out in his area, and so he used ProXPN to appear to be coming in from somewhere else and was able to watch his sports. Which because you know the network thought, "Oh, he's in Germany <laughs> or wherever," so you know that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, they're good so, people too, and I and I really like them. So thank you for their uh, support. And and of course, if you are uh, Steve Gibson, you set up your own Open VPN server. But for the mere mortals among us, it's nice to have somebody else do it. Yeah, now mine's <laughs> down, but you know theirs is. So. <laughs> There's another issue, right? <laughs> right. So Calomel SSL validation. Um, when I, uh, it's funny because I installed the shortcut after thinking that I would probably now get the big blue shield. Um, that we had not been receiving until now, and on the on the welcome page in Firefox, I found us. There was it said special thanks to Steve Gibson Aww. and Leo Laporte for mentioning the Calomel SSL validation Firefox add-on in Security Now episode four twenty eight, and also Security Now episode four thirty. And before long, it'll probably be edited to say, and also in episode four thirty one because that's this one. Um, and sure enough, we're now the Blue Shield, which is Yay. as good as you, which is good as you can get. Who are these guys? So, okay, what happened was the way I the way the reason I started talking about them in episode four twenty eight is that with the with the move to Firefox version twenty four, which is already a version ago, they I think it was four twenty four, maybe it was twenty five. I think we're at twenty five now, but but an add on had access 
to granular detail about the connection security. And so the Calomel, that's C-A-L-O-M-E-L, add-in, was it, it installs a, a shield icon to the immediate left of the URL bar in Firefox, and it's blue or kind of orange or I'm not sure what colors. I've seen like Google's not looking so good. They were, when I went to my Google Drive to set up the, the document to send you, Leo, I got only like a kind of a pukey looking yellow color. Um, beca- and I don't remember exactly why. But if you click on that, you get in-depth details. In fact, if you scroll down on uh, my notes, Leo, I took a screenshot of GRC's current Calomel SSL validation. Anyway, the point of this is it gives you very granular readout on the connectivity Firefox has with the server. And, for example, it shows that we're using an extended validation certificate. I kind of wish it gave me a little more credit for that because that's non-spoofable, whereas regular domain validation dv certificates can be spoofed with a man in the middle attack and that's why that's one of the extra benefits of extended validation but calomel doesn't give us any credit for that they just note it that it, it is there um and so then it ranks the cipher it shows the cipher suite you're actually using between the browser and the server the, the type of key exchange, and you can see in GRC now we have ECDHE. We talked about ephemeral Diffie-Hellman key exchange some time ago on this podcast, and that's the kind of key exchange where you're not using the server's certificate both for authentication and to establish key agreement you do the key agreement separately. You only use a certificate for authentication, and that's what allows that 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 that's that's what prevents a future compromise of the certificate from being able to decrypt past encrypted conversations. So, if you don't have perfect forward secrecy (PFS) as a consequence of having an ephemeral key that is a key that's negotiated on the fly between the endpoints, if you don't have that, then captured traffic can later be decrypted if the if the certificate ever falls into the wrong hands, the uh, <coughs> NSA <coughs> um, uh, or anyone else. So anyway, so we're now Blue Shield um because we have perfect forward secrecy at the expense of being technically vulnerable to the beast attack. The reason I hadn't set us up this way a long time ago was that we were getting dinged for being vulnerable to the beast attack. But now that Safari has updated themselves, and in fact, they're the last browser to do so, all the browsers now provide, provide client-side protection against the beast attack, and and that was an attack against um, the the CBC, the um, uh, the CBC style um, method of using a cipher was prone to some um, exploits if the browser didn't take measures. I think 
Opera was the first, and then uh, Chrome and IE and Safari. Now all the major browsers are providing that themselves, which allows me then to put the CBC ciphers back at the top of the list and move RC4 all the way down to the bottom. Now, in an interesting little side effect, I broke GRC's email. <laughs> Neither myself nor Sue nor Greg are, are any longer able to establish an SSL connection to our own server. But that's because we're using an, old, an ancient version of Eudora still. And we were, we were when, I when I updated all the servers at, over the holidays last year, that was the first time we were able to establish SSL connections into email. It's not a big deal because we established point-to-point -point connections to GRC. But if, like, Sue's out traveling and wants to use open Wi-Fi, it'd be better for our email to be encrypted and not in the clear as it otherwise would be. So it must be that the cipher suite that Eudora is looking for, I removed inadvertently. Oh, and my iOS devices won't connect either. None of my iPads or my iPhone will now connect securely to GRC. Um, so anyway, I haven't figured that out. I just did this last night. Um, and I immediately sent texts to Greg and Sue saying, uh, I can't send you email because email, I just broke email. So you guys are going to have to pull step back from using SSL briefly until I figure out, you know, what is in detail what I broke. So I'll have to add back a cipher suite that Eudora wants and then see what, what's going on with iOS. So, I'll, you know, I'll figure that out. But that's always sort of the – it's a consequence of, of sometimes tightening up security as you break things, which is why – you know, we've talked about, often about various companies only inching forward slowly um, to make sure they don't bro break things. And in fact, a perfect case in point is our next topic, and that's Google, who has completed its intended and an early announced migration to full 2048-bit SSL certificates. They were saying by the end of 2013, um, they decided to increased the priority of doing that and stepped up. Uh, they have now, they announced yesterday, I think it was, that they're now 100% uh, 2048-bit SSL and perfect forward secrecy cipher suites throughout, which we know matters because we know they're one of the targets of PRISM and other efforts of by the NSA uh, to perform data collection. So, um, they are now working furiously to do the same thing, to bring up strong security among all of their inter-data center links, which they believe were secure and private, but found out that you know, there had been taps installed. So uh, that they're working on also. And uh, Marissa Mayer announced that Yahoo will be following suit. And I did. I did see some, some, some uh, reaction to that announcement. Essentially, sort of yawns from the security community, saying, "Oh, Yahoo is going to be making themselves more secure." Well, that's yeah, okay. good. Why is that? Is I mean, I mean, I guess it's just that it's like snarky. Swiss, yeah, they were. It's like Swiss cheese deciding it wants to have fewer holes. Oh, really? Yahoo is not so secure. Oh my! Oh my God, Leo! We're <laughs> you know. Oh, oh okay. So SSL it, it, is the least of it. Exactly. It's uh, like, okay, well, that'll be nice, but that only leaves 12 other ways we can get in. So, <laughs> I see. 
Okay. So yeah, so Yahoo said they too are going to encrypt all the data between their data centers, and it's like, oh, okay, fine. And uh, and they're going to offer users an option to encrypt all of the data flow to and from Yahoo by the end of the first quarter 2014, which of course everybody else has been doing now for a, a year. They're like, oh well, you know, yeah, uh huh, yeah, we we too. So that'll be nice. Um. Crypto Locker. The top of the news there is just sort of random. I don't know why this picked up so much traction, but a, a random police department in Massachusetts, in Swansea, S W A N S E A. Yeah. Yeah. Swansea, Massachusetts, they got had by Crypto Locker and paid the ransom, which based on the Bitcoin value at the time, uh, they had to pay two bitcoins for a total of seven hundred and fifty dollars, um, and but then and their in their press announcement, I'm not really sure what the sequence was or why they even mentioned it, but <laughs> because I mean it really got a lot of traction. You know the idea that a police department got had by this, and they were saying, oh, but you know, don't worry, we're completely secure, and there was no exposure of any of our data. To which I did see a comment from from um, Brian uh, saying, uh, "Yeah, yawn, sure, okay, yeah." Um, but they paid their ransom and apparently got their data back, and they must not have been backed up because, of course, having a current backup is a way to thumb your nose at these guys. Well, also uh, the you know police uh, authorities are saying, "Don't pay these guys because it just encourages them." Well, yes. And <laughs> but you exactly. see the problem. <laughs> you, yes. Easy right. for them to say. Right. And that that's just it. When I when I see people saying this, it's like, yeah, okay, well, Unless, easy for you to say. Right. But, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. I mean, I owe my existence. I mean, the reason I'm here able to do the podcast with you, Leo, to I mean to take the time to do that is thanks to Spinrite, which is recovering people's data, right. which they – don't have backed up. Right. So it's like if people yeah. backed up, you'd be out of business. So fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so stop uh, it. So <laughs> people <laughs> that we're beginning to see, we're beginning to see some um, uh, sense of of how pervasive crypto locker is. Bitdefender Labs has reverse engineered, as have many others now, the domain name generation code. Which is how the CryptoLocker virus or malware, um, I guess it's really not a virus because it doesn't spread itself so much as it does, you know, as, as it's you, you, you pick it up phishing, um, malicious websites or ads or, or whatever, or, or phishing email. Um, uh, we've talked about this before, how based on the date, a cryptographic algorithm is used to generate a large i mean a many hundreds of of random random looking domain names and so there's like a spray and the client will then will then start making dns queries of all of these domain names trying to find the one from among them that the bad guys have actually pre-registered and set up a server on. This is, you know, sort of this is security through obscurity. It's not perfect, but you know, it works because the only way to prevent this would be for some 
for some authority to go and register, preemptively register all of those hundreds or more domain names, which is, you know, would, is a real problem. Also, because it's in many different top-level domains, it's not just in .com, but it's in many other dot um, prefixes um, or suffixes, rather, that we have talked about in the past. So what this means, though, is that CryptoLocker is trackable. You may not be able to intercept it, but you can track it because security researchers would merely have to register one or two domains in the future and then set up sinkholes to monitor the DNS queries to those domain names. They, that wouldn't allow them necessarily to block CryptoLocker because they can't respond to it affirmatively, but they can measure it. And that's what's been done. So here's a metric from Bitdefender Labs who did this, and it is chilling. In less than a week, less than one week of monitoring, they detected 12,016 individual IP accesses, individual IP queries to a DNS domain that they were monitoring. Now, you multiply that by two Bitcoins, which is the ransom, and hard to say what the value was at the time, but say that it was $500 because it's certainly there now. That's $12 million in ransom in less than a week, Leo. That's, that's a, like, hard to believe. And it that's why they do hard. it. And Well, unfortunately, it's why it will never go away. It's why, as I said, when this first happened, this is really bad because yeah. this means they can make money. And if they can make money, this is all anyone will ever do again. <laughs> and that's why I law mean, enforcement says don't pay them. Because, yes, but but we've said the same thing. Don't buy, uh, you know, spam uh, has a very low cost of entry and it must yes. work well enough to make it work because even to though we say again itself. and again, don't, you know, what are you, what are you crazy? <laughs> Don't buy Viagra through an email, but it must work. And it's the same thing, you know, the, yes. the cost of doing this is so low that. Now, uh, what's really interesting is that since we have IP addresses, we can now determine where the infections are coming from. Ah. And Microsoft's TechNet blog, they, for some reason, they've wanted to give it their own name. They call it Crylock, C-R-I-L-O-C-K. But they've got a really interesting chart like that, spray paint. Uh, yeah, in their blog, uh, which I have here in the show notes if you want to bring it up, Leo, which demonstrates a phenomenal weighting of of infection by country. That big blue pie is the U.S., which 79% is leading the percent U.S. Yes. Is leading everyone is leading the researchers to believe that these are highly targeted attacks oh, for whatever reason. Yes, that's the point. Interesting. So it's more like spear phishing. Yes. These. Yes. Exactly. And I mean, I've I've been I've been accumulating what I assume is crypto locker viruses. They're being sent in zip files, and I have a, a hex viewer that I can look at safely. And so I'll right click on the file that is an attachment in email and I get an ADP payroll 
Um, and you know that that that's the one I seem to be seeing a lot. And if I right click on it, I can see the first two bytes are PK, which is old Phil Katz, um, who who designed the format. But then inside, in the clear, is the file name in the PK zip format in the zip file, and I can see that it's it's dot PDF dot exe. So it's pretending to be a zipped PDF. It's actually executable. Um, and I, I, I have these sitting in a folder. Um, and I've been wondering if anyone would, you know, want to like deliberately infect themselves to have the experience or see it work or Let's whatever. See it work. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit no. dangerous. But, so you've but been so getting it. I'm getting it in one of my because I also have honeypot email accounts that are that I've been cre- that I've created o- over time. So it's so my targeted honeypot- in what sense? I mean, what is it about your honeypots that are attracting uh, attention? They're, they're, I mean, they've just been around for a while. Yeah. They're just they're, they're long standing. So anybody email could account. get this. It's not targeted oh, yeah. in the sense that it's you, you correct. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you know, police departments are getting it. All <laughs> kinds of people are getting it. But so it is email that is sending you this loader virus or the, this loader malware, which then goes and picks up the rest and installs it and, and does its dashly deeds. But clearly not just global surfers running across, you know, Internet pages. This is why it's 80 percent of the infections are U.S. It's, they are highly, highly targeted. Hmm. And I got a note uh, in Twitter from someone named Abe um, who said, he said, at SGGRC, do you think the recent surge in the price of bitcoins has anything to do with CryptoLocker? And he was one of many people who were speculating, and I don't think so. I think the reason we saw this bizarre, I mean, it jumped to near, Bitcoin jumped up to $900 at one point, or even north of $900. What? Yes. It, earlier this week, it was $900. You should have sold. Uh, <laughs> That's forty-five grand you have there, Steve. I know. Um, I should have sold. Was, I got seven or eight bitcoins. Holy cow! It was. It, it was. It was. Uh, Congress, U.S. Congress, was holding hearings about the nature of virtual cyber currencies, and the testimony was far more positive yeah. than people expected. I see. It. It was less. You know, knee-jerk morons talking and more smart people saying, well, you know, yes, bad guys are using this, but there are some serious benefits to virtual currencies. And Bitcoin just took off like a rocket wow. up to uh, north of $900 and uh, and stayed there for a while. And then it's come back down. But still, it's in the 500s, I think, at this point. 570, last I, I checked Mt. Gox. Is Mt. Gox the place you look for value, because uh, they say seven hundred sum is the is the peak. I found a neat app uh, that I like called Zero Block. Zero Block is a is an iOS only app, um, but it has a very nice screen that 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 shows you what's going on. You're able to tap up at the top to to change exchanges. You can pull down, and it will do a running computation of your number of bitcoins at the current price and show you how much you're worth. You, you you can also slide to the side and look at year, month, day um, charts of various sorts. It's free. Um, and and if you want to, I think it's 99 cents and then you can get the charts in color. Um, so anyway, it's a very nice little app that uh, 
that I like that I'm, I'm running. I'm uh, surprised you can still use it. Apple's been blocking uh, Bitcoin apps on the App Store for reasons. Interesting, Nobody because I, really... I, got, I got a few of them and then chose this one from all of yeah. them. So yeah, five sixty five at you know at the moment, and uh, it was uh, almost twice that not long ago. Pro- but it was a consequence of. I mean, I think people are nervous. I, I don't. I don't have a good feeling long term about the future of of any virtual currency. I just think our government is going to be unable to resist, you know, stomping on it. Uh, then it becomes a pirate currency, and that's going to that that's that's going to hurt it some and. Certainly, the, the all the attention that Crypto Locker is getting, uh, uh, yeah, is, yeah, well, and Silk Road too. To, so, so far, yeah. from the governmental point of view, uh, the people who are using Bitcoin are criminals. At right. least, there's two prominent examples. Right. Yeah. Right. And there was also some news uh, in this last week that assassinations can be purchased in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, now. we talked so, about it. Uh, the Bitcoin assassin. Because because uh, <laughs> didn't Ross Ulbricht or whatever his name is, the guy who was uh, is allegedly the mastermind behind Silk Road. Apparently, he tried to hire an assassin using Bitcoin <laughs> with wow. no with no result. I don't know what kind of assassin you'd get using Bitcoin, but. It must be that there are Bitcoin miners who are pretty happy. I mean, you know, I just I just you got are. fifty back back in the day, yeah. and it's like, wow, that's like, you know. But I mean, but seriously, there were a lot of people who invested a lot of money in hardware, and they were cranking out bitcoins when they could. And I'm sure there must be wallets that are stuffed with them right now. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, a second OS hiding within every mobile phone. This was another topic of great interest over the past week. Um, uh, here's what's going on. We're, we all focus on Android security and iOS security and, you know, and passwords and, and encryption of the ROM. When you, you know, you do, do you use a four care, you know, a four digit code or a long password? How do you make sure that, that your your memory in your iPhone is strongly encrypted when you're not using it, blah, 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 blah. All of that is only one OS in a dual OS architecture. There actually is a second operating system. Um, and this is it's the so-called baseband operation where the actual cellular protocol is managed. iOS has none of that. Android has none of that. They all just buy it from, from, you know, Broadcom or Qualcomm or, or one of these com companies. Um, they're, they're typically using an older ARM processor. Generally it's like version five. And, and for example, in the case of, I think it's Qualcomm, there's, 69 threads running on this ARM processor that actually manages the cellular dialogue, all the cellular protocol, the, the connectivity to the cell tower, the handoff, the, the, the signal strength measurement, the, you know, the, the whole underlying cellular tech. Now, this is stuff from the 80s. And what's happened is it hasn't changed much. And basically, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it was like, it's what's in the dumbest 
cellular phone you can get. So when you add brains to a dumb phone to turn it into a smartphone, what you're doing is you're just putting this blob of UI and much more power on top of, you're sort of hooking it to the buttons that that were on the dumb phone. But so there's still a dumb phone underneath all of our smartphones. And the point is, it is riddled with security problems. Um, th- back in 2010, um, and a, a security researcher messed with his GSM phone and just and, and he reverse engineered the code in the so-called baseband processor and found all kinds of problems. And in this last week, the reason this sort of came to everyone's attention is a is uh, osnews.com did a story um, about the so-called second operating system hiding in every phone. And and the guy who wrote uh, uh, Tom Holwerda, he wrote, the insecurity of baseband software is not by error. It's by design. The standards that govern how these baseband processors and radios work were designed in the 80s, ending up with a complicated code base written in the 90s, complete with a 90s attitude towards security. (laughs) Enough said. I mean, we know what a 90s attitude towards security is. It's like, yeah, my password is monkey, you know, and, and so forth. And he says, for instance, there is barely any exploit mitigation, so exploits are free to run amok. What makes it even worse is that even baseband process, even is that every baseband processor inherently trusts whatever data it receives from a base station. In other words, a cell tower. Nothing is checked. Everything is automatically trusted. And lastly, the baseband processor is usually the master processor, whereas the application processor, which runs the mobile operating system, is the slave. So we have a complete operating system, he writes, running on an ARM processor without any exploit mitigation or only very little, if any, which automatically trusts every instruction, every piece of code and data it receives from the base station you're connected to. What could possibly go wrong? So, I mean, this is, I think this has been more widely known than you you realize. A lot of times when you uh, jailbreak a phone or modify a phone or hack a phone, you're modifying, one of this, the baseband software is the radio software. So basically, mm-hmm. you often have to modify the radio software. So, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons you can do it is because hackers take advantage, uh, hacking and jailbreaking, rooting and jailbreaking, rooting for Android and jailbreaking for iOS, almost always take advantage of security flaws. That's what makes it easy to do, and I think often the security flaws in the baseband are uh, where they attack. So, I, well, while this is a revelation to some, I think. This isn't such news. What I think we're going to see, I mean, so so people were asking me, what does this mean? You know, and and my take, I mean, I, I understand what you just said, Leo, but we're now seeing enabling technologies we haven't had before. We've talked about software radios, which have really come up in, capa- in capability and down in price. That will enable 
individuals to trivially set up malicious right. fake cell towers. And so so it's been one thing for the software running on the on the phones to be insecure, but once what's running on the phones is understood, we're going to see next generation exploits of evil cell towers, you know, so-called base stations set up and people's phones will connect to them. Right. Because they will look exactly like and you know a Verizon or an AT&T or a Singular or or you know Sprint or or whatever and the phone will connect to it and I mean these things still had the haze instruction you know the yeah. haze command set yeah 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 <laughs> it's like oh my god right you know that that's all in there and uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna we, we haven't I mean even though it's the the vulnerability has been understood as we know ease of exploitation matters right and cost to exploit matters and when these so, when when the software programmable radios mature and people start writing exploit kits and start posting them you know we're going to start seeing problems that we haven't seen before so my take is. I don't think anyone's going to maybe you know maybe the the people doing the 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 radio software are now understanding they need to wake up and I hope they are because if they don't this will be the next frontier even though it's an old one. Yeah. You know I mean and really things that are being exploited are tech t- typically been around for a long time but it's like oh look we can do this now and so people are going to start. It's definitely uh in the interest of Qualcomm and these companies to uh, secure this stuff. Yeah. You know. So HTTP2 has also been in the news um, a little bit. This is We're now at HTTP 1.1. And, and HTTP2, th- there, is a, there is an organization. And if, if you want to just have your eyes crossed, Leo, look at tools.ietf.org. Slash WG slash that's the WGs for working group slash HTTPBIS. That's the page where the where they're managing. Yeah, there it is. And I mean, it just it's like, oh my lord! You know, this is what it takes. You know, in terms of committees and interacting and and working groups and so forth to to move something that is as big and as huge and powerful as HTTP to its next phase. And HTTP2 is where we're wanting to go next. Um, so one of the That's what BIS big, means. It means the second. Yes. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that that is is high on the agenda, more so now than ever, is essentially binding security much more tightly into HTTP than before. Everyone knows that we have HTTP and HTTPS, where the S means secure. With HTTP2, the the discussion is, should there be non-secure HTTP? That is, they're seriously looking at making HTTP HTTP two secure always. That is, if you are HTTP two, 
you are, that is HTTP version 2, you are secure, period. Now SSL style. Exactly, SSL yeah. style. Yes, you, and you we are, now have the processor power to do that, and that seems completely sensible. Yes. Now, one of the but but the problem is how do we get there from here? Because, for example, lots of sites don't have and don't feel they need privacy. That is to say, encryption. They're just you know they're just random pages. You know, like Wikipedia hasn't had it for you know until just recently. It's like, hey, this is just all. Public knowledge. This is just we're we're just a big database serving pages. Why do we need security? Well, you know, people want not to be eavesdropped on as they poke around Wikipedia because now we know everyone's being profiled. You know, when you were talking about what ISPs are doing, ISPs can see if you're not using a VPN everywhere you go because you're technically using typically using their DNS servers to ask for the IPs of every website that you look up so they know everything about you so one of the possibilities is known as opportunistic encryption or also known as relaxed tls and the idea is that remember that ssl provides two things it provides authentication of the server typically you can do the client but typically the server and and also privacy, thanks to encryption. But those two things are, are separable. They're technically not the same. In fact, we were just talking about how what a um, what perfect forward secrecy does is it makes the key agreement separate from the authentication, so that if you so that authentication um, doesn't govern isn't used directly for controlling the key and and thus allowing uh, traffic capture to be later decrypted if the if, if the key was known. So, you know, authentication and privacy are separate. So relaxed TLS says we can establish a secure, a, and here ver- terminology is very easy to get wrong, but important. We can establish a private encrypted connection without certificates and that's the case because the certificate is really only asserting the identity of the server and we could use perfect forward secrecy without a certificate just by setting up and we've talked about it a diffie hellman um, handshake does allow two endpoints to establish a secure a, a to agree upon a key which is then used for ciphering where a passive man in the middle observing their completely observing their communication is unable to determine the key that they each can but it doesn't protect you from active man in the middle that is it's it's if you don't have authentication, then somebody could insert themselves actively in your connection and you would establish a, a key with them and then they would establish a key with the other endpoint and be able to decrypt your traffic. So, I mean, and so this is why there's been discussion in the working group. It's like, well, 
okay, so yeah, it would be better to encrypt everything, except how do we explain this to people? Because, see, right now, when we talk about, you know, a, a, you know, a green title in the URL, meaning that you're encrypted, you're secure, that security assertion currently means we verified the server's identity. But if we're going to do opportunistic encryption, as it's called, or relaxed TLS, then we're not going to be verifying the server necessarily. Sort of there'll, there'll be like a second grade of security. It's like, well, it's not encrypted, but, oh, I mean, sorry, it is encrypted, but it's not authenticated, which means passive eavesdropping, like in a Starbucks open Wi-Fi. I mean, that's useful to not have everything in clear text, but so anyway, so you, you can so you can see that this is a very complex issue. What what does this mean essentially? If we, you know, how do we convey this, and what do we want HTTP version two to be? What they're suggesting is that version two will be like HTTPS is now. That, but and only if you're version two, you're secure, meaning you are pri- you have privacy from encryption and you have strong authentication of the endpoint. And but then of course clients that didn't support HTTP version two or servers that were not offering an SSL certificate wouldn't be able then to claim in 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 their um, um, uh, in their handshake, they would not say, "We, I support HTTP version 2. They'd be supporting version 1.1, which is what we have now, and offering no certificate. So then the question is, well, okay, you know, is there then a place for relaxed TLS? And, and part of this dialogue, this argument is, no, let's just, you know, HTTP strict transport secrecy or security, remember we've talked about, you know, STS, strict transport security, um, uh, provides a lot of strength. And listeners will remember when I asked Google to, and Google agreed to add GRC into Chrome so that Chrome will never accept a non-secure connection to GRC. It is wired in to the browser. So, so even the very first connection, which te- technically represents a, a w- tiny window of vulnerability, even that is is protected um, from um, from being eavesdropped on, and and that would allow an attacker to get a wedge in essentially, and um, and and cause other connections to the website not to be secure if the first one is allowed not to be. Anyway, we've covered all this in the past uh, in our uh, podcast about uh, HSTS, HTTP Strict Transport Security. So anyway, version two of HTTP is coming along and uh, I'm glad. And and I'm also glad that, again, this is another more fallout from Snowden is, is a much heightened focus on, on privacy of of HTTP web connections by default. Well, and we'll, we're not sure how we're going to get that yet. 
And Elaine sent me an interesting link. She ran across uh, in her travels the, a, a court order which was uh, using freedom of information to compel the government to tell us what it has in the way of an Internet kill switch. And, we, you know, the Internet, the, 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 the term Internet kill switch has come up from time to time. And it's like, uh, you know, okay, you know, really? Is there, is there such a thing? And apparently now it's unequivocal that something, a facility like that exists. Um, I got a kick out of the fact that it's known as the St- Standard Operating Procedure 303. Because the first thing that came into my mind was, which apparently results in the generation of 404s. <laughs> I don't think they were thinking about that. But. I don't think so either. <laughs> um, but as I understand it, and as the documents will that the, the they're trying to get imply, the our government through Department of Homeland, Homeland Security does have the ability to shut down both public and private carriers of traffic on the internet in the event of some emergency and i imagine what that emergency might be i just i just think that's a bad idea i just i mean i it's like the more we depend upon the internet the the less it's possible to understand. I mean, it makes us feel like a third world country to have the ability to yeah. like. I mean, first thing you think of is what happened in Egypt and Syria when the precisely when people were uh, rebelling. They immediately turn off the internet. I think the theory is uh, that one kind of cyber warfare would involve a concerted attack, let's say on our on our electrical grid. And if it were felt that the only way to protect the electrical grid would be to turn off. Uh, access. access and it might yep. be i mean who knows where that kill switch lies it might be saying no access outside the u.s or it might be let's just shut down the internet i mean it's not clear what that is uh, but let's say it says look nothing outside our shores can come in on the internet uh, it, that might yes, be a reasonable it, response to a cyber attack at, uh, on our grid it absolutely must be leo that that there is the facility to sever the trunks you know, the submarine cables, all those optical cables and probably satellite backup. There's got to be the way there's got to be the means to isolate the U.S. from the rest of the globe. I'd be shocked if that didn't exist. Yeah. Um, I hope it doesn't uh, extend to 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 intra as opposed to inter. That is, you know, intra U.S. I would sure hope stays connected. I mean, I think it would it would really I mean, I don't think the government even knows now what would happen if they tried to kill the internet intra-U.S. Can you? I mean, can you imagine how dependent we are on on our connectivity? Yeah, being, I'm being sure up? the argument goes something like, "Well, if they kill the grid, the internet goes down anyway." So let's protect our grid, you know, by shutting down the internet temporarily. But mm-hmm. but what it does raise is the specter of these countries that decided that instead of allowing criticism and open conversation, that we just shut down the ability to to social. Well, to yeah, and we we can no longer question whether or not hostile, potentially hostile foreign yeah, we know that's going states on. Yeah. have cyber warfare initiatives, and we know we do. 
which you know still right. seems like science fiction to me. It was like oh, I okay. would bet, given yes. the cozy relationship that uh, the government has with uh, Sprint, AT and T, T Mobile, and Verizon, that they're probably the companies that run the backgrounds, chiefly uh, uh, a, a Sprint. They probably have a they uh, co- they could make a call and say, hey, could you just shut down the backbone for a little bit? We're having some trouble here. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? No, I'm afraid that's true. I'm sure that exists. Yeah. Yeah, it has to. Yeah. Um, here's a little random tidbit that I got a kick out of. This was actually thanks to Simon Zarafa, a, a frequent contributor to my Twitter feed. Um, it turns out that some researchers at MIT were curious about what the optimizer in the very popular GCC compiler. Uh, what's GCC stand for? Probably GNU something compiler. Um, anyway, that's the compiler that everybody in the, I mean, like that's the compiler that the whole open source community operates on. Um, it turns out that the compiler in that is currently operating everywhere that everyone is using to compile open source code has been discarding what it consider, cons, considers to be ang- ambiguous or do-nothing code. But it turns out those are deliberately created security-relevant checks, including those things we talk about here all the time, null pointer checks and pointer overflows. And you can imagine how this could happen because a sufficiently clever compiler extends back and looks, it's like it's processing the flow to and, and to what degree it can, understanding what's going on in the code. And so it sees something that is like checking to see if a pointer is zero or not. And but then nothing happens, like with the result. I mean, an exception gets raised, but not like it doesn't see that there's a clear effect or it, it, it's, you know, it's a pointer is being checked for, for bounds. But when, you know, in it's less than infinite wisdom, it looks to see what effect that has downstream. It says, well, this has no downstream effect. So it removes it. So it turns out that the actual, the actual object code that has been generated for some period of time, I mean, substantial code that's funny doesn't contain the 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 and the security checks which the source code authors deliberately put in i'm not um, sure how that could happen because this kind of optimization as you say it, it takes out loops that do nothing well i can't imagine a secure some any optimization that does nothing is it instrumentation well, but, that's not turned on that no, it's it's present, but see the, the the the. I mean, you might argue that this optimizer is needs to be fixed. One certainly would, or but the, it's, or the security code has to be written better. It's looking at the downstream consequences to see whether a, to to see whether the code has an effect on the outcome, and arguably, security checks don't. They are. They, I mean, they're doing something, but they're they're like they're v- validating assertions 
but they do not affect the outcome. And that's the point. And the yeah, optimizer I'm not says, sure I buy that. I mean, don't you put in test code all the time that doesn't out affect the final outcome, but would would throw a flag if there were an error? Well, there is a you're really right. bad optimization. Is what it there's is. a really nice PDF uh, that I linked to in the show notes from the MIT guys. They've gone through and found thousands of packages in the in the current Debian <laughs> repository. That's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> that have all been ruined by this. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely real. Huh. Yep. In fact, there there's their comment um, uh, in, in 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 that security current page talking about it with so a link to they, the. They, they, they give as an example null pointer checks, but you don't want to optimize out null pointer checks. You always want to check for null pointers. That's, yes, that's, that's and not, that's a bad optimizer. Or but, pointer but overflow my point, checks. It, yes, yes, it is. But it is in the GCC right, compiler. Right, it right. is doing this. So it's a good thing they found out, and we need to remove yeah. that and then re recompile everything. Yeah, Un undefined <laughs> yeah. behavior and unstable code. That's just a, that's a yeah. bug. I think that's a bug in the in the optimizer. That's terrible. Well, it was you know. It was someone wrote it in there and thought, "Oh, look, I'm, I, I'm this will remove this something does that doesn't nothing. have. Yeah. This doesn't have a consequence." Right. Yeah. Okay. Two really interesting new payment systems um, that I received a lot of information about, and th that, I know where that, you're going with one of them, and I'm, I think you might have fallen prey to a very good publicist. This coin thing. <laughs> I would love to hear how about the security implications of it. Well, okay. First don't, of don't, all, do it in order because I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, it's okay. But we, I, I, I've never seen more publicity in one day. It all happened one day, and people came into our chat room and said, "What about coin? What about coin?" And I think there was a very good concerted effort to raise attention and awareness to something that is a non-starter. But go ahead. Okay, so let's talk about it. Uh, yeah. Um, so here's what it is. Um, and anyone who's interested is it's onlycoin.com and beautiful website and a a minute and forty six second video which explains it and it's intriguing and I think I know how it works that as I've you know knowing how it would have to work the so theory is that a credit card uses a mag stripe reader. And that you could have in one credit card a programmable magstripe. No. No? No. Because, okay. by the way, this is a non-starter in every country but the U.S. where they use pin, chip, uh, pin, chip and, and pin. Correct. Right. So what it, the way it looks like it would work, Leo, is what you said. Right. And what it, what it actually is, I think, is very clever, which is why I, I take my hat off to these guys. So what you get is you get this credit card... That looks exactly like the remember the the, the VeriSign one time password card. Right. It was a credit card size thing that had a button on it, and when you press the button, it would give you a six digit output. Um. So this credit card has is it's got an e ink display and a and a merged in battery that lasts about two years. It runs Bluetooth four. LE that we were talking about last week, the low energy version, and it ties to your cell phone. So the so in operation, you you have a you have a a, a credit card reader 
very much like Square, the little the little fob that plugs into your your earphone connector or earphone and mic connector on on a smartphone, and then you you scan your various cards one at a time through this this reader gizmo into your smartphone, and then there there's all your credit cards in your smartphone, and then through Bluetooth LE. Your smartphone, they say, loads all of those credit cards, however many you've got, maybe 40 credit cards, into a single card. Now, you then, you, there's a button on this single card where you press it and it cycles through which credit card you want this to be. And, and then you, you're able to swipe that stripe through a through a standard magstripe reader and and that card gets billed now you would think i mean from what i just described you would think this is some amazing card because as you press the button it's like reprogramming the magstripe well okay that can't we don't have that technology that's you know that's nano <laughs> nano stuff with spock and kirk um, and it doesn't have to do that, which is, I think, is why this is so brilliant. Um, this is all sort of a user interface. Is my and this is just my theory. This is all just a very clever UI where the card appears as you press the button, and the e-ink display changes to show you which card it is. This is a little sleight of hand. The card itself is statically programmed uh, with their own credit that's card. Is. That's what it is, yeah. And so they are a proxy for yeah. all these credit cards. There's, this which, is not uh, new, by the way. There are companies that do this. I think it's, oh, no, I, I did not know that. But they don't, cool. do it, they don't do it with all the sleight of hand. They just have you have a credit card that you charge everything through, and then it, it, gives, it splits it out into whatever you choose. Ah. And so what these guys have done is that makes sense. they... they doesn't it? I think it's yeah. so cool. So, so, so as you still, as you press the button on the credit card, it cycles through showing what card it's going to be. It tells your phone using its Bluetooth link. Your phone tells them using your, you know, Wi-Fi or cellular link up to their cloud-based service. Then, when this card gets swiped. The charge go and and they're they've they they've established themselves as a merchant so they you know mean it's like you know as a credit card company so the charge goes to them it sees what the current setting of the card is and then it acts as a proxy sends the charge off to you know B of A or 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 you know Chase or whomever. Um, and all of this happens in real time. I mean, remember, I wrote an e-commerce system to, for, for Spinrite uh, processing. So I've done all of this. This happens in real time. That comes back to them. They then bounce it back to the merchant and say, you know, accepted or declined or whatever and and charge the card. So anyway, I just think it's just – I assume that's what it's doing. It's not reprogramming the mag stripe on the fly. We don't have the ability to do that. That would just be – yeah, crazy that, yeah good. um that i didn't even think about that but of course you're right that's nuts yeah and but it's just like and and i do think it's a little weird because i mean you 
I love the idea that you press the card and it shows the change, but then you but then you you hand it to the waiter to pay your bill. How do you know he's not going to press the button too? Right. And, and they say, oh, it, we made it so it's not easy to press yeah, it by mistake. It's like, yeah, ah, okay. And I'm how not, do you know you the know. waiter is going to say, what the hell is this? Give me a credit card. And it's not right. going to work outside the U.S. because uh, chip and pin. And yep. I mean, the, the the problem I have with this is that they're really lobbying people to give them money now. If you do it now, you'll get half off. Yep, uh, which, pre you have twenty three days left of fifty percent off, which means so. giving them fifty five dollars for something that, if you ask me, will never see the light of day. So I just would warn people to be. I think cautious. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I. I should say I'm not endorsing this, except the. I just love the hack. This is a clever hack where. Yeah, I like that part. It, I. I think you're and you're so good at reverse engineering this stuff. That makes a lot of sense. And in fact, that kind of thing exists. There are uh, these special cards that are kind of you know allow you to have a variety of affinity cards, and you, but you do it online. It's a little bit slower. Yeah, uh, and are there some with like with an iOS interface so you no, can set no, no, the no, no. card? No, 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 no. They're all just the plastic that you would then, uh, I, you know, I should find it because I, I there's there's a couple of these out there. Somebody sent me a link. My real huh. problem is this was a this was it it so I smelled something funny because I've never seen such a successful one day campaign to get attention and in everywhere from the Christian Science Monitor USA Today. Uh, Coin reinvents the wallet. Coin changes the wallet. And I well, see and it. you know, it's a it's a slick video, Leo. You watch that yeah. video, you know, because it pulls the sleight of hand. It makes you think that you've got a programmable credit card. It's like, right. wow. You know, it's not, that's not how they do it, but it's the way it looks. And that bothers me, too. It, in fact, Kickstarters banned these slick videos. They say you have to have an actual prototype in your video. because, oh. And this is not on Kickstarter. And they bill you no. immediately. This is their own website, and they because they're not uh, they don't have the rules of Kickstarter. They don't have to tell you anything negative about it, like the fact uh -huh. that it's a the credit card companies, uh, Visa, Mastercard, etc., could immediately clobber this because it's True. saying no. <laughs> yep. Nice try, yep. boys. They they you're right. They could easily say we're not accepting charges from you, yeah. and it's game over. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I think there are security implications, especially if you're sending this through Bluetooth LE. Um, no, I, I guess not. I see no. I see no security problem because it's at all. in your phone. All the data is in your phone. It's never anywhere but your phone. No, it is also in the cloud. They they do the uh, cloud, all yeah. the cards need to be in their facility in order for them to be able to 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 proxy those cards on behalf of their card. Yeah. So as but, long as you, know, you trust Coin. Yep. Which is a big if. On the other hand, well, yes, your debit cards are at risk. Remember that your credit cards are always backed up by the credit card company. So, yeah, and they've changed now, the law on the debit cards too, so that there's a limit ah, on how much you can lose. I think it's fifty bucks. Good. Nevertheless, I just think this is a non-starter, and you're giving yeah. fifty-five bucks to a company that's going to disappear. I wanted to talk about it because I thought it was. Well, clever I love technology. it that you figured out how they do it. I think that's you know I'll tell you where I failed is I just read it and go, oh yeah, reprogram the magstrape. <laughs> of course, it's okay, that's that's number one. <laughs> number two is on Kickstarter, and it's called Loop. And it's I have a problem with the fact that they acknowledge it only works ninety percent of the time. Oh boy! So it's like, well, okay, but oh, that's boy. that's bad. But what it is is again clever. 
So what we know about a mag stripe reader, and you can, I'm sure all of our techie listeners know this. You looked in that little slot and you see like, you know, a, you see a magnetic recording or in, in a fact, head. reading a read head. A yeah. Read head. Yeah. yeah. And you can see it. And, and, and so that, I mean, I often look in to make sure I got the card oriented right because you want the stripe side of your card to be facing the read head. So what we know about, and you know, I've, People who remember that animation I did, that JavaScript, when I was playing with JavaScript animation, showing magnetic flux reversals and so forth. And obviously, I've spent some time thinking about the way hard drives read and write. Um, you have on the stripe, you've got a you have re- reversals of magnetism on that stripe, and that induces a magnetic field in the windings of the read head. This read head is like, think of it as a very sensitive magnetic microphone. And so this, the, this, the, the completely passive, simply magnetized stripe is able to essentially send a signal into the read head, which it picks up. But so could an inductive coil. Mm. And that's what these guys have done. Ho, ho. So, so they have either a, a, a back that you can add to an iPhone containing an inductive coil or a fob that you plug on, again, to the, the headphone microphone connector that contains the inductive coil. So the idea is you, you again, you select a credit card. And so now you're, you're, at, you're at the supermarket and you're standing in front of the little swipe your card terminal. Instead, you bring your phone within an inch of the slot and press a button and it sends, it sends the magnetic signal that the card being swiped would send magnetically across the air gap to the head, which picks it up. So, very clever. Yeah, um, yeah, that's neat. Now, the Only problem works is some of the time. Yes, ninety percent of swipe pay terminals. So they say, oh, now you don't have to carry your credit cards with you. Well, yes, you do for the ten percent <laughs> when it doesn't work. Well, and the fifty percent of the time when the clerk says, "What are you doing? Get away from my terminal with your phone." Well, and you can't give it to the waiter in the restaurant. Right. You don't want to. You want to hand your phone to him. Oh, it's unlocked, and uh, here you go. You know, go go hold this near the terminal. It's like ah. The other problem I, I have so. with both of these is it's kind of solving a problem that doesn't exist. Is it really such a pain to have a credit card? I don't. Well, that's just it too. As I I have main card and a couple backups, yeah, but that you I don't, a wallet I don't anyway, this. right? Just. Keep a credit card in your wallet. What are they solving? What what massive problem? And I can't believe they raised one hundred twenty three thousand dollars on this. <laughs> I know. This is my big they problem with Kickstarter. They wanted a hundred grand. They got one hundred twenty three thousand seven eighty eight when I checked. Unbelievable. Uh, apparently, it's two veteran charge card guys. One of the guys pioneered mag stripes. Is like that's, well, that's though neat. maybe he's looking for yeah. I mean, so you know they've got their tech down. Um, anyway, it's it's cool on Kickstarter. It's pay with loop for anyone who's interested in taking a look at it. Um, and of course, the other problem is that you need to then have this bulky um, back. You have like this bulky case for your iPhone, 
which doubles as like a backup charger because they thought, well, let's give it some more functionality because otherwise it's at, we're asking a lot. You which, know. Is, which is worse, carrying a wallet with some credit cards or a bulky back on your iPhone? I know. I, I just am baffled by... I know. This is my problem with Kickstarter is I think people are a little bit suckered sometimes by this stuff. But anyway. Okay. Well, wow. thank you for the analysis. Yeah. So I'm we got two to, interesting... Yeah, they're interesting. Two interesting payment solutions. Um, oh, a bit of a ratter from last week. Elaine wrote, Steve... You may have had feedback on this already, but you accidentally named Pando Daily as the fraudulent Bitcoin exchange Ooh. <laughs> ra- rather than as the high-tech newsletter yeah. that ran a story about the fraudulent Chinese Bitcoin exchange GBL. Oh, golly. She's, sorry, Pando so Daily. She, yes. So sorry, <laughs> Pando Daily. She said, I played with it in the transcript. So thank you, Elaine, for correcting it preemptively. She said, but you might need a verbal correction. So, done. Um, she said, just mentioning it now because I'll have forgotten all by the, by the, about it by tonight when I send the transcript. So she <laughs> sent me a little piece of email right when she encountered it and said, whoops, I want, might want to fix that. Um, my iPad mini arrives in two days, Leo, on Friday. Wow. So I'm, I'm excited for that. I've not seen any mini retina um, so I'm I'm very anxious. I did go by my local Verizon store and look at the current mini, which boy does it look grainy. Oh. Yeah. You know, we're all yeah. that's just like how did we ever how look at we, this and yeah. think this was good? Wow. <laughs> uh, I just, I've had like, I have two minis. I like them a lot. Um although it's interesting the guys at DisplayMate have done uh, a color accuracy analysis and um huh. Because Apple's decided to go with this indium gallium uh, arsenide, or indium gallium, gallium zinc oxide technology, IGZO, instead of a more traditional um, uh, LCD technology, um, they say the color gamut's not so good. In fact, that the uh, they're beaten pretty handily by the Nexus Seven and the um, Amazon Kindle Fire HDX. And I don't care about that. I at don't all. think you care about that. No. The Christmas no, is very I, nice. Oh, I can't wait. And <laughs> and now I also just yesterday picked up the rumor of a coming of next year a twelve point nine inch display iPad. Have you you know no doubt seen seen we, word of that? Yeah, we've heard the rumor uh, the iPad Maxi or the Maxi Pad. But uh, you know I I'm not sure I buy that. Well, you know, and, and for, for me, the use case would be, I mean, I've got one of my iPads sitting next to me, like where I watch TV. And I'm, I'm grabbing it all the time right. to look things up or to check things or, you know, what's the weather? What's what, you know, what's the movie schedule, blah, blah, blah. So I could see a larger pad that was deliberately non-portable. I mean, it almost doesn't need to have a battery in it. Yeah, but you for bought my, uh, Kindle Fire DXs too. Which have since been discontinued because nobody else. Oh, I love them. my I love my DX. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think anybody bought them because <laughs> Amazon stopped making them. So uh, yeah, I think this is a rumor, but uh, you know, with Apple rumors, one never knows. Yeah. So I wanted to also uh, just mention that my recommendation of Incipio Dual Pro case got a huge amount of positive feedback. They began to arrive apparently from la- my mention last week. People started getting them in the last couple of days, and many people said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, one person, Rick, 
uh, tweeted, he, and his his Twitter handle is Slarty Bartfast. So <laughs> you we, know where that comes so from, right? We know where that comes from. <laughs> and he said, Steve, oh, Steve, iPhone since three, never a case, never dropped. Then he said, I also hate plastic on couches. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I liken it to, but... Uh... <laughs> So I mean, and I totally understand. It's just, the phone by itself is just exquisite, right. but I just it is trying to leap from my hands. <laughs> it's trying to increase its level of entropy. Yes, so yes. I just don't want to let it. I did have some people saying, ask me, what do I like for the iPad? And something I've never mentioned before that I really like is something called a Jella Skin. G E. L A S K I N. You sent me and some. yes, I'm I'm right a huge one. fan, huge fan of the Jello Skin. It is a, it's a an ex, in fact, I even here's one on my iPad One Pretty. that I had. They uh, that's Keith Haring. Yep, exactly. They have real artists, a huge selection of skins, and so so what this is. For people who can't see, it's just it's a sticky, but it's removable, a relatively thick and tacky backing. So I I put it on the backs of the pads. And I have it on my Kindles. You can get it for phones, Kindles, iPads, uh, iMacs, all all range of different devices. Uh, so it gives it a really interesting sort of. You can be making a statement with it, you know, stay calm and carry on is one that they've got and many others. But it's it's grippy. So it it you know, it gives you some a sort of a, a tacky back. It's sticky enough that, for example, it'll 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 like, you know, you could just hold you just put your hand behind a, a, an iPad and it'll just stick to your hand without slipping, which the 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 metal backing wouldn't otherwise anyway so that's so check out jella skin g e l a s k i n's skins.com um they're not inexpensive but they last forever and you can peel them off and remove them so it's not like you know political bumper stickers that you're in, you end up advertising a the, the the candidate who lost to your embarrassment you sent for me, uh, you many sent, <laughs> yeah you sent me these for my uh, my kindle uh, way yeah. back when, but uh, they didn't do uh, cases back then. So, right, uh, and so I like those guys a lot. Yeah, um, and oh, I also wanted to mention just that for people who don't follow me on Twitter, I'm I often get questions from people that I would I'm happy to respond to. Except I have I don't know many thousands of listeners now, thirty something, and so I I just can't do you know, at mentions back, I don't feel like I can do that. Or I just, you know, my Twitter feed becomes conversations with people rather than sort of announcement stuff that I want to keep. So little tip for what it's worth, little tip. If you have at the very beginning of your tweet, the at sign, if that's the first character, then the only people who will see your at reply are people who mutually subscribe to both of you. And of course, the person you're responding to. Does not enter your general feed. Oh, no kidding! So people are when people are sending me at sggrcs. If it's that's the first character, on, if it's the first character, it's only seen by people who subscribe to the two of you mutually and both parties. That's uh, why sometimes you'll see a tweet with a dot at. Yes. Yes. That's intended to make it public. 
Oh, but because then the at sign is no longer first. Right. If the at sign's first, that's what happens. Okay. Well, now of course, if thank you, you. You can thank if you, you, thank you. Yeah, but that's it. Now, if you go direct. So why have a DM then if you have that, which seems the same? Well, DM is a step farther because DMs only uh, seen by the purely, two parties at either end. Purely private. Right. Okay. That is, so people sometimes reply, re respond to me, I'm unable to DM you. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I, you have to sorry, but I'm not right. following you. <laughs> right. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, you don't want DMs. Now, now I'll be able to reply to everybody without worrying about messing up my, my, my Twitter. Yeah, it's kind of, that's what Twitter did kind of to, for exactly this reason. Neat. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So Mike Willis, uh, tweeting as Mike Willis, or Wills, sorry, Mike Wills, uh, said, based on at SGGRC recommendation, I'm running Spinrite on my wife's laptop to get the HD in prime condition again. And I just thought that this was a perfect segue because I did see, I think, an increase in Spinrite sales after talking last week about first of all sharing the testimonial where you know that hugely damaged drive that laptop was recovered by spinrite um and got back data that corporate data that was otherwise you know in great danger but this notion of of um preventative maintenance um, I also, in the last week or two maybe, uh, there was someone who was running Spinrite on a brand new drive. Oh, I remember. It was forwarded to me through Greg because uh, he had some other detailed questions about, about Spinrite. So Greg forwarded it on to me. But he bought a brand new drive and didn't – he hadn't run across the smart page. I In the last few months, I wrote – well, more than that, but relatively recently. I did a couple pages that it clearly explains – Spinrite's smart monitor, the self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology, SMART, and how there's a there are some bars which get pushed down to reveal red. And that's not good when that happens. And so this guy had a brand new drive that he ran Spinrite on, and three of the bars got pushed down, and it seemed to be generating lots of seek errors and lots of corrections more than he felt comfortable with so he returned the drive it was replaced with one and when he did the same thing the bars did not get pushed down so this is one of the coolest things i i think about spinrite six is that you know it's nice to have the smart stuff there but it really only means something when the drive is under load when the drive is being asked to do work that's when the drive notices that it has problems that it wouldn't otherwise notice. And so what you want is you want this nice synergistic combination of Spinrite putting the drive under load, constantly reading the drive's smart feedback and showing it to the user. So the, so the drive is seeing that it's having problems because Spinrite's asking a lot from it and and the drive is these these bars that are being pushed down is the are the smart parameters which are being suppressed or depressed by the work. So, if 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 people already own Spinrite um, and you haven't run it for a while, I mean it is tremendous um, preventative maintenance. But while it's running, or maybe you know after it's been going for a while, switch to the smart screen and make sure. 
that that you that you've you've got green or I think it's maybe cyan all the way across and no red showing because you want to get the red out. Um, you you shouldn't have red there. And if you're interested for more, I do have a, some documentation on grc.com that shows a screenshot of this that I've that I've I've highlighted sort of with like you know callouts showing where all these things are and and what they mean. But anyway, this guy replaced his drive and had no more. And and when he did the same thing, the second drive did not have its bars depressed because that drive's smart system was not being surprised by the drive's brand new condition being untrustworthy. So, uh, you know, many people say they run Spinrite on brand new drives before they deploy them, which, you know, this this is exactly why you would want to do that. So um, it certainly does make sense. And we hear from people all the time, Spinrite owners, of course, you can't prove a negative, but they're saying people's hard drives you know, all around them are dying, but they run Spinrite preventatively and they've never had a hard drive die on them. So we don't know that it's Spinrite, but it's, you know, seems pretty likely that it is. Well, before we uh, go on, radius. I think we have time to do Radius if you don't yes, mind. Yes, we do. Um, let me uh, do a little ad, if you don't mind, for uh, some really great guys at itpro.com. TV. They uh, they were here uh, a couple of months ago, and they said, "Hey, just wanted to let you know. Do you mind? We <laughs> we were so inspired by a tech TV, and in particular the screensavers, and by your speech at. Uh, they said NAB. I think it's New Media Expo, but anyway, you're, I don't think I've given a speech at NAB. But by your speeches about you know doing your own thing, new media, getting out there and doing it, that we actually built a studio duplicating yours." With the TriCaster, the same microphones, the same everything. And uh, and um, we are doing IT uh, certificate training uh, on it. And I said, mine, I'm very flattered. And I don't think it's competitive. Uh, and I think it's just so cool that you're doing it. You want to visit it, take a look at it. It's itpro.tv uh, slash security now if you want to visit the security now page and see Steve's face. Uh, they have a video on there. You can uh, see the guys and, and see what they're doing. It really is. It's. I'm certain that many of you uh, are interested in uh, getting a certificate. It's certainly the way to get a job nowadays in IT. And they have a variety of certificates. You can uh, get your A+, you know, your CompTIA certificates. You can get um, Microsoft and Cisco certification there. And it's very affordable. But it's also fun. It's one of the, there's hundreds of hours of content, 20 hours, new hours every week. If you visit the episode library, you'll see all the back episodes that uh, you can uh, see. And then, of course, they also do it live just as we do. Let me see if they're live right now. They usually are live when we're doing a security now. Yep. It's so cool. Let me just uh, turn the audio up a little bit. Was, you know, which one's going to win, WiMAX versus LTE? Yep. And, and it looks like LTE has won out, right? So yep. you had some carriers. And you like can see the set. It looks WiMAX just like the screensaver set, right? down to the and, and fake rubber to, bolts to on the, the wall. Uh, IT doesn't have to be boring. There is an easy, entertaining way to learn that is, in fact, affordable, too. These guys... Uh, have 10 years of experience in e-learning. They really know their stuff. And if, if, if you watch, you know, the free stuff, the live stuff, you will see immediately how good they are. Uh, and 
it is affordable. Subscriptions, normally $57 a month. That's very fair. $570 for a year. That's much less than taking a course at a technical college, but you're going to get all the same information. But if you sign up between the end of now and the end of the year, so you've got about a month and a half to do it, using the offer code SN50, uh, you'll get... Get this, 50% off for the lifetime of your account. Look at that set. Does that not look like the screensaver set? I just yeah. love that. I yeah. love it. They are on Roku. They're on computers. They're on tablets. I love it. They have an IT Pro Roku channel, which means you can add it to your Roku. What a great, easy way to learn. And at half off, you're spending $28.50 a month. That's less than the cost of one prep book. $285 for an entire year. I'm telling you, this is a great... Check it out. Visit ITProTV at ITPro.TV. If you go to ITPro.TV slash security now, you can take advantage of our offer code SN50. If, it's been, if, it's, if you feel like it's time for you to get those certs, to get that job, I know a lot of people who listen to this show especially are trying to become, um, you know, get in the business. that They want to change businesses. I talk to people all the time. There's Tim yep. Broom, master of my domain. Don uh, Pizet, he's a super host. Tim and Don visited us a couple of months ago. Mike Roderick, keyboard destroyer. <laughs> Ronnie Wong, Chinese redneck. That's his name, not mine. Don't blame me. SharePoint super freak, Jay Berkey. Wes Bryan, super geek. Super producer, Nate Copeland. These are a great bunch of guys. What are those little bars below them? That's what they have done, what they've completed ah. or what they're teaching. So nice. you can see uh, Don's got the CCNP, the MCSE. He's got uh, 50%. Uh, this is of his of his uh, content, not what he has. He has A-plus, Network-plus, Security-plus, CV, CCNA, CCNP, JNCIA, JNCIS, PMP, HP, Master, ASE, MCP, MC. I know Don is an overachiever. <laughs> but this is what of, of his uh, the content that he teaches. And I see that 84% is drinking scotch. Don's a man <laughs> after my own heart. Tim is visionary, 95%, 69% lucky. 1% certified expert penetration tester. <laughs> 69% takes things seriously. You get it? These guys are kind of fun. F kind of fun. You're going to love it. I, I want you to check it out, please. ITPro.tv slash security now. Great guys. And I'm really thrilled that they, uh, that they have, uh, that have emulated what we do. And they're, and they're doing such a great job. And I'm really glad to bring them to you on Security Now. ITPro.tv slash Security Now to find out more. And don't forget, SN50 when you decide to buy. Yeah, Don wants every certification ever. <laughs> I think he's really wow. close. I've never seen such a list. Oh, my God. All right, Steve. Radius. This came from a question about another one of our sponsors, ProXPN. But well, I, actually, m yes, yeah, many, many. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go ahead, cut you off. Go ahead, but I mean, just men, many people have. Tra I, I've seen tweets where I've been mentioned in Twitter, where they've been responding to Pro XBN saying, "Wait a minute, you know, uh, twelve characters. What kind of security is that? That you know, come on, get real. I'm I'm using Pro XBN for security." And you guys apparently have lousy security. <laughs> and and ProXBN responds and says, well, no, we're using Radius. So th that's a limitation of the Radius setup. But, you know, that's not bad. And so finally I thought, okay, look, I'm just, you know, let's talk about this because it's something we've never discussed on the podcast. 
to give you an idea of the how venerable RADIUS is, it is an acronym. R-A-D-I-U-S stands for Remote Authentication Dial-In User Service. So um, this dates back 22 years to 1991. Um, wh- and the... The way, probably the best way to think of a RADIUS server is sort of similar to DNS. In the same way that DNS is used by clients to look up the IPs of websites using their domain name, a, a radi- and, and in that sense, the DNS service is centralized. That is, people all over the place can can use that server to perform their lookups. Radius provides an authentication service, a username and password authentication service. So, and again, it's centralized. It uses UDP protocol by default, just like DNS does. And there is a there is a a, a packet level specification, and um. The one place users may have seen it is in their own routers because, for example, a, a corpor- in a corporate environment, a corporation might have, have Wi-Fi r- routers scattered all over the facility, you know, on, on many of them on all the different floors in order to get blanket Wi-Fi coverage. Well, it's obvious – well, s- several things are obvious. First of all – you, in that setting, you would not want to have a single username and password or, or you know, uh, uh, shared key because then all the employees would have to be using the same, the, the same shared key, um, you know, pre-shared key. And changing it would be horrendous if you ever needed to change it for some reason. And when you, when an employee left the company, they would leave with the knowledge of what the pre-shared key was that they had to put into their laptop once. And that's a problem. So, so there's a different model, for example, in this, in this mode of how to authenticate users to Wi-Fi. And that is every single one of those individual Wi-Fi routers running just like the Wi-Fi routers we all have at home, instead of using a pre-shared key, you use radius. Sometimes it'll say radius and, and, and give you a field to put in the radius IP. And this is exactly like DNS, where you put in the DNS server IP. Or maybe it'll say WPA Enterprise or WPA2 Enterprise. And when, when what the what that enterprise typically is is code for a centralized authentication service, and so what happens in this mode, in this you know multi-floor corporate environment, is somebody walks in with their laptop, and they and they want to associate with a a you know the router the Wi-Fi router nearest to them, the the router doesn't contain itself a database of every um, username and password within the whole system. Um, and so, so you know, obviously, if, we, if we're going to move away from everybody having the same pre-shared key, 
what we do is we switch over to a model where where everyone has their own username and password for logging into the corporate wireless network. But now you have another problem. If every user has their own username and password and a given user is at a single access point, you know, what is it going to have? The database of the entire company directory? No. They, I mean, and first of all, these are little tiny underpowered sort of embedded devices. They're not going to have, they, they don't have the, the local storage to store the whole database in order to provide local authentication of every corporate customer who might come to them. Instead, they pass that on in the same way that they don't have all of DNS. They don't have any, in fact, of the accounts for, for the the corporate environment, they use Radius. Radius is the standard in the in, uh, in the industry. Routers understand Radius. Switches, you know, port forwarders, all kinds of equipment knows Radius. There is something called Free Radius. It's probably .org, but if you just Google Free Radius, you'll find it, which is a ter- a terrific open source implementation and free, obviously, of this Radius service, which has grown over the last 22 years. And there, it's, I mean, it's RFC crazy um, with, with a whole series of RFCs that have been updated over time as the technology has evolved from the original dial-in approach to, you know, VPNs and networks and tunnels and, and crypto and everything that we've got. Um but so in, in back to our, our corporate model, somewhere IT manages a single radius server, which is on the front of a database. And this could be a SQL database. It could be LDAP. It, it could be a flat file, you know, any kind of database that radius understands. And today's radius servers understand how to talk to all of these. And so... The user wants to authenticate with their own unique username and password. That gets that 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 that's given to the local Wi-Fi router or hotspot. It then knows the I, the corporate IP of the corporate's radius server. It encrypts the username and password because it has a pre-shared key with the radius server. So it encrypts that over the network. The the radius server receives it. It turns around, does a database query to say, is this user authenticated? And there's lots of granularity. And, you know, this thing is like any spec that's been around for 22 years. It does all kinds of other things, too, uh, that the IT may want. It, you know, it, it also does a, a accounting is another facility, not just authentication and authorization, but also a, a, a accounting of you know how much bandwidth or how much time and and so forth depending on what the company wants so the radius server looks it up uh turn turns around and sends another packet back to the 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 endpoint saying yes this user is authenticated or no they're not and connect the connection goes from there so now the same model exactly that model similarly makes sense in a global setting where any entity like ProXPN that has servers deliberately scattered around the world 
has a single customer base that is a single set of 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 authorized users who are able to log in to any of those VPN endpoints. Identical model. So ProXPN manages this single database, which is their customer or account database that has a radius server on it. And similarly, all of the access points spread around the globe when when an individual connects to it, they authenticate with you know their credentials, their username and password for ProXPN. The the radius client that's running in that VPN endpoint sends a, a UDP packet after encrypting it down to the radio to the centrally located radius server, which looks the user up and then and then decides whether this is somebody they know, sends it back to the Radius client that then authenticates the user and allows them to establish a VPN tunnel to the endpoint. So, so with a 12-character maximum length, which I won't defend the fact that that's not long. We all know that's not long. But it the nature of the lookup process means that anyone trying to attack this is is necessarily unless they were to hack proxpn's backend database um, is inherently doing an online attack so you'd have to guess the password and then that goes to the VPN endpoint that sends a UDP packet down to the server which makes a database query looks it up says nope wrong you know bad guess sends that information back to the vpn endpoint that then says sorry we can't authenticate you there went one guess well so that just makes brute forcing radius based passwords virtually infeasible because it's got to be an online attack um they allow upper and lower case of 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 alpha a through z so that's gives you 52 characters plus zero through nine, so that's 10 more. So now we're at at 62, plus exclamation point, at sign, pound sign, and dollar sign. So that's four more, so we're now at 66 character alphabet. So a 12 character password with a 66 character alphabet, assuming good entropy, that is that you arrived at it randomly, gives you 6.8 thousand billion billion passwords, which is a lot of passwords. That's 72.53 bits of entropy, which, you know, it's not 128, but 72. And for online attacks, that's way more than enough. It's certainly the case that they need to have good security and protect their their um, backend and their database. But finally, I'll just remind everyone, as I did mention at the top of the show, that this is more to protect them. Um, users are not storing anything in a ProXPN account. This is them get. This is the user gaining access to the account. And if the worst happened and someone was abusing their their a password that escaped from them, well, they could change their password or they could contact ProXPN and say, "I think my account's been hacked. You know, set me up with another one." So. 
the whole notion of logging in with an authenticated account is is to protect ProXPN from abuse of their global network rather than the user. Again, it's like it's not like the model where you're wanting protection against, you know, cloud access to all of your cloud stored files. All you're doing is you're saying, this is really me, somebody who has an account, so let me connect to your server. But anyway, so I wanted to clarify that to respond to all the tweets that I've seen from people who are annoyed by the fact that there's a 12-character limit. I don't know any details um, about, about the back-end database, the, the, the details of Radius, why they chose a 12-character length. Probably it's just that, you know, they recognize an online attack is infeasible. They've got, you know, sufficient security to, to, for, for their own needs um, on the back end. And using Radius, you know, is what's going on. It's, it's very different from a single website, which is, is, as we know, storing characters or could be storing characters in an insecure fashion. Um, and and damage could be done to us if our account were hacked on that one web server. Instead, Radius is used to to for, to to distribute authentication, and you know we're using it to gain access to their VPN network. So uh, it's not a problem, um, although it's not something we've never talked about before. So I just felt like it was a loose end, and uh, that's how Radius works. Is it widely uh, used? Oh my God, Leo! It is everywhere. I mean, it's funny too because you know we we see DNS because it impacts end users. I think we're we've never talked about Radius because it's just never had an impact on most of our customers. I mean, here's here, and in fact, that's why I was moved to talk about it was because it's you know it's Radius that uh, remote authentication, which or or distributed you know global authentication, which is. It is like poking itself out into the user's experience through right. ProXBN's use it, of it. it. But but otherwise, yeah, we, we just never encounter it. I'm sure that lots of, you know, lots of our listeners who are in IT go, oh, yeah, you know, we, we got Radius. That's the way everything authenticates within our entire corporate network. Probably every corporation, if they're not using, you know, some proprietary Microsoft you know, active directory solution, uh, Radius may well be what they're using. Yes. And because it, I mean, it, it is the standard. It's a Cisco th- uh, solution. Cisco adopts it. N- nobody owns it. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so Cisco is just one of many people who, who have it. In fact, I have a, a note here in, in my, in, in my uh, notes where I, I was looking up on us just sort of getting a sense for it. Cisco says, DHCP server radius proxy. They said the dynamic host configuration protocol, DHCP, server radius proxy is a radius-based address assignment mechanism in which a DHCP server authorizes remote clients and allocates addresses based on replies from a radius server. So so there's an, an example where radius is the back end and the DHCP server is making radius queries to a radius server and so the so essentially radius is the database that DHCP is drawing on rather than DHCP server having the database itself i mean so this is this, this is just pervasive 
within within you know IT enterprise class IT radius is what everyone is using. Uh, and is it the case that you a bank wouldn't want to use it or somewhere where you are trying to protect something behind that password? Oh yeah, I, I would think banks probably are using it to authenticate all their own employees, oh. but it wouldn't make sense to expose it to On the, the world. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So this is there, a specific reason is because you're logging into an account at, at ProXBN. Uh, you're actually getting on their network, in effect. So that's yes. a logical thing for you for them to use. Well, and if they didn't do this, then they would have to have some database replication technology. Which could be where they have learned from Google more of a problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where, where, where every one of their globally located right. VPN endpoints would have to have the entire database of all their customers. And then they'd have to be keeping that current all the time. Whereas by using Radius, their database is in one location. And when, as customers come in and go out, they're, they're, immediately authenticated or de-authenticated across the entire network. It's just, it's very cool. And that's, it's been going on silently in the background of the internet for 22 years. Wow. Steve Gibson explains all. He knows all. And you can uh, follow him at grc.com. That's his website where Spinrite lives, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and all the freebies he gives away all the time. You can also follow him on the Twitter at SGGRC. Uh, you can also ask questions at grc.com slash feedback next week. If all goes well, a, a Q&A episode. <laughs> unless something catastrophic happens. Unless the, unless the world ends. Um, or something less than that. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. You, if you go to grc.com, Steve has a 16 kilobit audio of the show, the smallest version of audio for the show, as well as transcripts, which are the smallest version of all. For your perusal, we have uh, higher quality audio and video available at our site, twit.tv slash SN. You can watch us do the show live every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, that is uh, 1900 UTC, and it will be changing, as I mentioned. Uh, January 8th, we will shift to a new time, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time, uh, 2100 UTC will be our new time starting January 8th. Just a little program note. Um, what are we doing for the holidays? You said you had something planned, I think. Last year we did the portable dog killer or something. No, you played a tape. No. An old tape. Yep. <laughs> so start thinking about it. Uh, yeah, I will. I, yeah. I have all of the original appearances that uh, I made on the screensavers. That would back be in the fun. You and Kate Patella and, yeah. and that, you know, Trouble Kevin, was, Kevin, Kevin was about nine years old. <laughs> Click of death. Uh-huh. Oh, that'd yeah. be fun. So I thought maybe I'd put those together and that okay. would be fun. Another okay. another walk, you know, blast from the past. We're trying to get to know our users. Don't forget our survey, twit.tv slash survey. And if you've taken it already, our hearty thanks to you. Um, and we are looking for people for New Year's Eve. We're going to do a 24-hour uh, of New Year's. Steve will be with us in studio for that. Yep. Twit.tv slash NYE if you'd like to participate. We want countdowns all over the world for 24 hours. Thank you so much, Steve. Always a pleasure. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.